Welcome to Changing Your Dreams, Parenting a Child with Special Needs, a podcast where we shine a light on the unique grief of special needs parents that few people recognize and no one really talks about. I'm your host, Laura Kitts. How do we live a beautiful life with chronic stress and grief? How do we nurture ourselves while we nurture our children? How do we make ourselves a priority when they need so much? My guests and I will discuss this chronic, ever-renewing grief, transforming your dreams, and how to take care of yourself along the way when parenting a differently abled child. Jessica Fine is the mom to three beautiful teenagers, the middle of whom has two rare diseases that make her one of six in the entire world. Listen as Jessica takes us on the journey of her daughter's diagnoses and illness. It's a story of love and hope like you've never heard. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to talk to you. Full disclosure for our audience. Jessica and I have had this conversation before. And I just um, didn't hit record. So uh, we're going to pretend we're meeting for the first time. We're going to pretend that never happened. The most lovely, gracious woman to walk this earth. And so I am so grateful to talk to you again today um, and share for the first time with our audience (laughs) because we are recording. Um, Will you tell us about your family and your kids? Sure. So I have three kids. I have a 13-year-old, a 16-year-old, and an 18-year-old. My husband and I adopted all three of them when they were babies from Guatemala. Okay. And the one that we are here to talk about is my 16-year-old. She has MRF syndrome and Lee's disease. Uh, She was diagnosed first with MRF syndrome when she was four. And Many years later, we received a secondary diagnosis of Lee's. Okay. Um, so she's one of six in the world with the dual diagnosis. Both, both Murph and Lee's are mitochondrial diseases. That's a lot to wrap your head around, one, in, one of six in the world to have this. It is, is. It is a lot to wrap our heads around. That is true. Though that was much easier to wrap our heads around than the initial diagnosis of MRF syndrome. Mm -hmm. Because knowing you are one of six, it's just a number. It doesn't really, it didn't really mean much already with MRF being so rare. Mm -hmm. Everything about having a child with a rare disease was very much part of our lives. When we found out it was even rarer than we had initially been told, it, it, it didn't change things that's, in yeah, any practical that, way. That's understandable. So so even the whole just super rare thing is, is a lot to wrap your head around. So yeah. let's start there when she was four and she got this diagnosis of Murph syndrome. What is Murph syndrome? What does it mean? All right, Murph syndrome is myoclonic epilepsy, ragged red fibers. Um, but essentially it is a very, very rare form of mitochondrial disease. So our story with mitochondrial disease was different than many because she was diagnosed quickly and mitochondrial disease can be very, very, very hard to diagnose. In her case, what happened was she, um, you know, I knew as mothers do 
I had an instinct, something wasn't right. Um, she was developing, but I felt like there was something a little off in her speech and she was wobbly and it just, things weren't coming together the way I, I had seen with my other child, I had was seen with my friend's kids. So I felt there was something going on, but I kept being told by doctors, by specialists, oh, she's fine. She's on the lower end of average. She'll catch up, give it six more months. And this went on for a couple of years. Right. Ultimately, we got a hearing loss diagnosis. Mm. And we thought, okay, that could explain the, the, the speech delay and the balance issues. But we didn't know why she had hearing loss. And because she was adopted, somebody along the way suggested genetic testing. And the genetic testing, which was a simple blood test, showed a definitive diagnosis for Murph syndrome. Okay. You can have mitochondrial disease and you can have it in many organs and not in your blood. And then it's harder to diagnose, right? But because my daughter's blood is so severely impacted, um, it was very easy for them to diagnose with a blood test. Interesting. So then what? So you get this news and, and I mean, how do you even process that? How I was just recently remembering my own moment of my daughter's diagnosis. And I described it as, um, you know, you know that the doctor's talking, but everything just goes blurry. And, and it's yeah. like you're in a tunnel and you can, everything's like, wah, 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 <laughs> you, you know? And so what, you know, did, what was your experience? That's what it was like for me. Yeah, you know, so, so he said mitochondrial disease and, and my dad was with us. I mean, my husband and my dad and I all went. So I feel like I knew something big enough was gonna happen. I wanted an adult there, someone more of an adult right. than we were. You know, I brought my dad, but- <laughs> your dad, of course. Right? But, but we, my husband and I took two separate cars and I always think about that because I, I think had we had any idea the gravity of the news we were going to get, we would have driven together, right? But we had no clue. Even when the doctor said, I have something to discuss with you, I wanna discuss it in person and no, you don't need to bring your daughter with you. Mm. I should have realized, right? but you know, I have to say, even when he told us, even when he was saying the words and he was pulling out the diagrams and, you know, the, the, the PowerPoints and all of this kind of stuff and trying to explain to us, I had no idea what he was talking about. I didn't even know what mitochondria were, let alone yeah. mitochondrial disease. Right. I mean, it was like, I, I vaguely remembered learning about it in high school biology, you know, but, but I had no idea. Sounds familiar as a word, but we don't really know what it no, is. No, and yeah. so he said, no, protein, energy, you know, this, that, the other thing, rare, we don't know, all these things he's saying. And I'm like, yeah, but so, so does that mean like she's not going to be able to, you know, go to dance class tomorrow? Like I just it didn't, I had no clue what he was saying. The one thing that, that kind of sunk in right away was the word degenerative. Mm. Because what he said was the areas where it's showing up will get worse. So the fact that she has some hearing loss now, mild hearing loss now, she will likely be totally deaf. The fact that she is wobbly and, and has you know some balance issues, she'll likely end up in a wheelchair. You know, but, but he had no idea uh, what period of time 
this, there, there was just not enough data. He didn't know any of anything definitive, right? right? And so for me, it was like, I knew we were getting some really big news, but I didn't get it. I didn't know what the what it was he was saying. And, and I went home that night and I, on the one hand knew we just got life-changing news, but really our lives hadn't changed at all. And they didn't change for, for some time. Right. So that's the thing, like when, when those diagnoses happen, like our, our kids are still our same kids that they were for us yesterday. Exactly. Exactly. But it's hard to realize that sometimes, but you, you kind of did, you're like, so everything's still the same. <laughs> right. And slowly, you know, things started to change. So all of a sudden we had a lot of appointments, you know, my husband and I started having a quote unquote business meeting every Sunday night where we'd look at the schedule for the week and we'd say, okay, we've got PT and OT and neurology and speech and this and that. And how are we going to, you know, divvy up and, and divide and conquer. So we had that and we started to get more, more medications, right? So with mitochondrial disease, there's nothing that you can, there's, there's no magic pill, but what you can do is you can address the symptoms. And so we started giving her a lot of different kinds of medications. Um, so those things increased, but the fact of the matter is she was still in a mainstream school. We were still going on family vacations. We were still doing the things we had done before. Yes, they were more cumbersome because we started to have more equipment. She was getting tired. So mitochondrial disease, in case you don't know, is an energy deficiency disease. I mean, at its core, that's what it is, right? So she, you know, she was getting tired, but, um, but looking back now, I see that our lives were essentially the same as they had been before for some time until the other shoe dropped. And when was that? That was when she was uh, just about to turn nine. It was about a week before her ninth birthday. So you went for five years, like just kind of living yeah, life still. And you know, she, okay. she went from walking and running and jumping in those five years to needing a walker. Okay. And then we got a, a fancy to say wheelchair would be, you know, I look back, it was kind of like a stroller wheelchair that we would yeah, use. If yeah. We were, so, no. yeah. They call them strollers, but I call my yeah. daughter's a wheelchair just because like she's 20 and I don't want to say she's in a stroller, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know, we were, we would use that for long distances. Um, so, so she was, she was starting to lose some functionality slowly, but she was also learning because of the age she was at, right? So we were trying to like cram as much knowledge into her as possible before before she started to, to lose some of the functionality. Well, and you know, that's an interesting thing you raised. Um, so cognitively, how was she age level? She was, she was totally 100% at grade level cognitively. And for me, my mm -hmm. biggest thing was I want her to learn to read because mm -hmm. if she loses her ability to hear, if she loses her ability to walk, I want her to be able to read. For me, reading and my husband, for both of us, we're just huge readers that we think it's like the biggest gift to just have time to lose ourselves in books. And I felt like that is something she could always have. So for me, that was something I started to focus on a lot. With. Oh, that gives me chills. I think you're so right. You're so right. That's beautiful. So she's like from age four to nine. And so she's old enough to like understand what yeah. is happening to her and, and she can articulate her, she can speak fine, right? 
Uh, yeah, she had her speech was garbled. Her speech okay. was garbled. Okay. There were certain certain words that were always hard for her. And then and then what happened was we went on a family vacation to Florida, February spring break. Before we get to that though, I, I, where I'm going with this whole like she's fully capable, you know, cognitively, what did she say to you in those times? What could she communicate as far as how she felt about losing yeah. her ability to walk well, you know, going to a walker and just stuff that, like that? What yeah, she... and that that was that was really, as you can imagine, and as you know, um, so difficult, both in terms of trying to balance being honest, but also keeping, staying hopeful. And that was so important for us, for her and for, for her siblings. And she would ask, you know, mama, why my legs don't work? Mama, why I can't hear, you know, those kinds of things. And, and I, you know, you just don't have the right answer. You don't have the right answer because life isn't fair, sweetie. That's, that's not a good answer because, you know, different bodies work different ways. And that's, that's where I would normally go to, you know, and, and, you know, your brother's eyes don't work as well. So he needs glasses and your ears don't work as well. So you use hearing aids and we, you know, we're going to, you know, so, so it was that kind of thing, but really what you want to say is because, because it's not fair and because I would do anything in the world to give you my legs if I could. And, you know, there, there's so much you want to say, but you got to be <laughs> both age appropriate. And also we wanted to keep her, um, her positivity and she was so feisty and she had such a great spirit about her and she was so up and, you know, that was something we really wanted to nurture in her. How did it feel for you in those times when she would say, mama, why, why don't my legs work? Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. How did you grieve that, that time? You know, the, inter the, the, the notion of grief is such an interesting one because I, I had really two approaches to it. On the one hand, it was, I'm not grieving this, this, this person is here and, and, and I am not going to grieve somebody who's here with me. And I, and I was, you know, that was my attitude for a long time. But the fact is, there was a lot to grieve. There was the vision the, of what her future would be. And by extension, what our future would be. And that was a loss. And there were daily losses, right? And there were incremental losses. And so if, if, if there was a lot to grieve and it would come on in kind of unexpected ways. I mean, the first time that I really felt grief, my husband and I were out for dinner and it was, I think maybe the first time, maybe a year later, we finally had an opportunity to go on a date. And uh, we were sitting there and chit-chatting about something. And then before I knew it, I was sobbing like in paparazzi, you know, while we're mm. eating appetizers and, you know, having a cocktail. And he's like, oh my God, what's the matter? Do you not feel well? And I was just, you know, it all came flooding out. Like, I want to, I want to be able to go shopping for a wedding dress with her. And I want to, mm. you know, I mean, she was seven, right. And I want to be able to, you know, take her on college trips and I want to do this and I want to do that. And it just all came out. And, and I realized at that point that, 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 yes, there was a lot I was grieving. But, you know, I was in such a go, so go, go real. mood. Because That's so real. I mean, it, it is, but women, the whole like <laughs> wedding thing and 
But I was very much in go, go, go mode because you see, I believed I was going to find a cure. Mm -hmm. Now, to be really clear, remember, I didn't know what mitochondria were. I am not a doctor. I am not a researcher. There is nothing about me that would suggest. I mean, I hate to break it to you, but your chances. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but but for some reason, I thought, okay, if anybody can do this, it's going to be A determined me. mama would be the yes. one. Yes, I was like, I am going, I was like, I'm going to Aaron Brockovich this thing. And I'm going to like, and, and, and my friends believed me. They were like, yeah, you, you will find the cure. And I, and so, so you see, I wasn't really grieving because I was so focused on moving and on being busy and, and dealing with the logistics. And I didn't let myself be, you know, I didn't let myself be in it because right. Because I had, I had her, I had the two other kids, by the way, I had a big job, a full-time job this whole time, which I still do. Mm -hmm. Right. And I had, you know, just a lot of responsibilities and we were going to solve this one because that's what we did. Right. We're right. I'm a problem solver. So, and, and I think for me, you know, when I look, look, I, I, I have changed so much. Right. And, and there's been a, a huge transformation. And, and I think one of them was at some point saying, look, I can spend all my energy trying to solve this thing, or I can focus on this child who's here and just wants to be a kid and just wants her mom to be with her and be silly and hang out. And like, you know, I can't do both. Oh, that gives me chills. <laughs> and my, you know, I learned a lot from my husband because he's very good at being present and being in the moment. And I'd be on the phone with the specialists and I'd be advocating and I'd be fighting for this or that or the other thing. And then, you know, I'd look over and he'd be, you know, cuddled in bed with her reading a book or, or, or goofing around with her and her brothers. And I, and I was missing out because yeah. I was trying to solve it. That is so, I mean, I'm just, thank you for sharing that because I think that that is such a story that so many of us can relate to. I think that's such a dynamic between the, the mom and the dad, the man and the woman, the husband mm -hmm. and the wife, that is so common that, you know, that role. And um, I, it, it's so true in my own marriage and family, you know, and so I have thought the same thing. I've got a lot to learn from my husband who just is, you know, they're over there tickling and cracking yeah. up and loving life and being together. Right. And, and I think we feel like, look, I knew from the moment this baby was placed in my arms, my job was to keep her safe. And if I couldn't do that, I wasn't doing my job, right. you know, and, and look, what, what happens when you, when you see somebody who's pregnant and you say, Oh, do you know what you're having? And, and they say, Oh no, I don't know. As long as it's healthy, as long as it's healthy. Right. And I think, well, now I look and I say, well, and what if, what if your baby's not? And what then? Right. So I think we're conditioned to think like, I'm just, you know, I just, as long as I'm, as long as I'm healthy, as, as long as I'm happy and healthy, or I'm going to keep my kids safe. And, you know, so we, that's the, you know, the mama bear in us. And I'd hate to break it down and say, you know, by, by gender, it can be the papa bear too. And it can be, you know, but in our For case, sure. it happened. But yeah. I think, but I think just, I, I do believe that there's, you know, just a very inherent differences between men and women. And it's not across the board. It's not a hundred percent. There's always, you know, different personalities and whatnot, yeah. but generally speaking, the moms are the ones handling all the scheduling, all the insurance, yeah. all the medicine ordering, all the diaper ordering, all the stuff, you know, all the yeah. things. And, and look, that stuff was my comfort zone. It was very easy for me. 
immediately to start making color-coded spreadsheets and to get the binders and to have, you know, everything. That was my comfort level. Being, being present and in it and all of that, that was hard, you know, and when we get to, you know, where, what our life is like today, which is quite different, it became even harder because now we became very, very, very medically complex. Okay. Well, let's, let's jump back then to, she's almost nine and you were going to go on vacation. And we're, there we are in Florida and it was freezing cold in Boston. And, you know, the kids all had the sniffles when we got on the plane and we didn't think anything of it. And because this was a long time ago. Right. COVID. <laughs> this was right. So right now that invokes up in every know, 2014, 2014. Yeah. Nobody had, you know, we couldn't even imagine COVID at the time. And uh, our third day of the vacation, my daughter's cold was getting worse. And I called to the doctor back home. I thought, thought I was overreacting to call the doctor. He said, you know what, go, go to like a local ER, just go in and, and get her checked out. Maybe there's an antibiotic or something. And I said to my husband, okay, you know, we'll be back. Save us a seat by the pool. We never made it to the pool. We never made it back to the hotel <laughs> because what happened was we got to the um, ER and her oxygen was plummeting. And before we knew it, we were in an ambulance going to a bigger hospital. And within 24 hours, she aspirated and was intubated. And my sister flew out to pick up my boys uh, and take them home. And we moved into that hospital in Florida. She was intubated for a week there and we wanted to get back to Boston. In that hospital in Florida, nobody knew, nobody had heard of Murph syndrome, but nobody even really knew about mitochondrial diseases. So this was a real shift for us because we were now the experts and we were now explaining to people what mitochondrial disease is, what Murph syndrome is, what meds she can take and can't take, you know, everything about it. We're educating wonderful medical staff there and they wanted to learn and they were lovely, but they didn't know a thing about her disease. And that was a real change. That feels like I'm trying to, you know, I can just feel myself there, you know, having had a child who's been in the hospital and been, you know, it's a scary situation, but never at that level, you know, like someone else, the doctor's not knowing. And and so then, I mean, did that affect your kind of trust in, in like her being there? Did you feel like I can't take my eyes off of her for a second? That's how I feel like it would make me feel is like, they don't know what they're doing. I can't leave her side. It it made me feel that way. And not only did we not leave her side, but it was like, we wanted somebody to walk in and be in charge. We wanted somebody right. to walk in and start talking and, you know, saying words that we didn't understand because <laughs> that they were smarter than we were. And we wanted them to say, we're going to do, you know, this, this is the treatment and this is the, you know, and we, and then they'd have to explain it to us in layperson's terms, right. but instead That's it was reversed. We were explaining it to them. And that made me feel so scared and so desperate to be on our home turf. Um, and that was a whole other thing because insurance said, we're not going to fly you back and a medical jet costs $30,000. And we did not have $30,000 to spend on a medical jet. So I start fighting with insurance and, you know, it was a whole saga there in Florida, but we, we made it ultimately got that medical jet and we were flown back to Mass General Hospital where people do know what mitochondrial disease is and where people do know what MRF syndrome is. But those people met 
my daughter when she was intubated and they assumed she was much sicker than she was. Mm. So they said things to me like, who's her pulmonologist? And I said, what's a pulmonologist? Right. You know, or they said, how frequently do her seizures come? And I was like, she's never had a seizure. You know, they assumed she was a very sick kid when really the day before we went to that hospital, she had been eating chicken nuggets and swimming in the pool and, you know, functioning. Yeah. But we stayed in that hospital for three months and uh, every time but that you were they, back home, you were back. We home. were home and my husband and I started alternating every night in the hospital. One of us would be home with the other two kids and one of us would spend the night. I can't wait to hear more, but first this. This episode is sponsored by Flight Club. Join a circle of friends who understand you and your life as a special needs parent. Combine that with monthly guest experts, live self-care accountability sessions with me, and easy, actionable assignments to help you emerge from the hard work, transformed just as the butterfly from her chrysalis. And you've got Flight Club. We both took leaves of absence from work. And, uh, and we had some really difficult decisions to make because it became clear over time that the only way she was going to be leaving that hospital was if she had a tracheostomy. Mm. And what we knew in her case, it is not always the case, but in her case, that meant she would no longer be able to speak. And we had to decide to give her that operation Mm in order to be able to get out of the hospital. And we knew that that was going to take her voice away. I can't. Yeah. That, no, that's, that's heavy. Yeah. Yeah. And when we left the hospital three months after the day we checked in, she lost her ability, not only to speak, but to eat. She had a permanent feeding tube, uh, to walk completely lost that 100% and she became completely ventilator dependent. Practically speaking, the other huge change was that she became a 24 seven eyes on patient, meaning she could no longer be by herself for a moment. My husband or I, or a nurse specifically trained in her care needed to have our eyes on her 24 seven because of the ventilator. So I like, I'm just, you know, trying to wrap my head around all that. That's so big in such a short amount of time. And, you know, we just had the conversation of, you know, how, how did you deal with loss? And previously, you know, you had said you just, you were just doing all the things and staying busy. And so what, what was this like now? Was that, you know, the same? And because now you've got even more, you have to, I mean, you're scheduling nurses to come work at your house and. And we had to turn a whole room into what is essentially a hospital room in our house, right? I mean, the amount of equipment and medications and the number of people in and out of the house. I mean, it's constant in terms of nursing and, and, you know, you got, you have your nurses and then you have the people who come to check on the nurses and you have your machinery and the people who come to check on the machinery and, you know, all the equipment. And we didn't even know what the equipment, you know, what half of it was for. You know, I still believed at that point I was going to get her into a, a study. And, and in fact, what had happened was I had, I had gotten her into, uh, accepted into a study that was really 
promising and uh, we were going to go a couple months after we got out of the hospital, go to DC and participate in the study. And it would mean we'd go there for a week every month for like a year. And they ended up kicking us out of the study because she became so um, compromised. And it wasn't until we were kicked out of the study that things really changed for me because I still thought, ah, the study's gonna be the thing. And then we're gonna have a story because then what's gonna happen is remember when, and but yet this study, she's gonna be. And when they kicked us out of the study, that to me was, okay, we're no longer waiting for the light at the end of the tunnel. Now we're working on making this title as amazing as it can be. And that was a big shift. We're, we're no longer looking for the cure. We're no longer waiting. We're now working on how do we make every day as amazing as it can be for her and for her siblings. Yeah, that's definitely some grief yeah. to feel at that time. So, you know, you mentioned your other kids can you tell us a little bit about them? And yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's interesting because we really, we tried for so long to shield them, um, to keep, to keep the positive face, to keep the, well, we've got this, you know, we, and, and I think we were wrong to do that. Mm -hmm. I think what happened was our, um, kind of, we got this attitude, <laughs> Um, made them question their real feelings of, of anger, of fear, of sadness, all those things that of course we were feeling too, but we thought we don't want them to know that. Right. And, and I wish I had done that differently because ultimately, especially my older, you know, had a really, really tough time and, and finally was able to articulate, well, why do I feel this way? You guys are, you guys are just, you know, you're always so happy or you're always, you know, can get everything done. And I don't know why I feel this way. And I realized, oh my God, we've done such a disservice. And so I wish that I had, you know, in an age appropriate way, been, been more forthright with, with my own feelings and my own grief and my own struggle only to make them feel this is normal. This is to be expected. That's but I was trying a, to protect them too much. Valuable you know? lesson for us all though. Such insight and yeah. Wow something that I hadn't really necessarily thought of specifically in that way. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's really great. Thank you. Know, thank you for that. And so, and so you were able to come home. She's literally has to be looked at 24 mm seven. -hmm. How, yeah. how do you create some sort of normalcy in your home for everyone? How, what does life look like? <laughs> Then. You know, it looked like, first of all, a lot of people, as I was saying, you know, there were just so many people in and out of the house all the time. And so you, you deal with the fact that your house is no longer really your own, right? You're no longer, because there, there's people there all the time. And I, I always remember I had a new friend over and my little guy said, oh, are you a new nurse? <laughs> because they started to just assume, right? That people yeah. who are in our house and you get such a strange cast of characters. I mean, of course we had some people who became like family, but we had a lot of crazy stories of people, all kinds of things, you know, falling asleep on the job was the least of it. Oh dear heavens. <laughs> but, um, but we really did 
try to do as much as we could and to, um, you know, carry on because, because what is, what is your choice, right? We could, I suppose, curl up in bed and, and say, okay, we're just going to all hunker down. And, you know, again, pre-COVID, right <laughs> we, we didn't that wasn't that wasn't what when we nobody do. knew anything about that right we weren't going to hunker down we were going to be out there and we were going to you know find the things that she could still access and we were going to do so for example the art museum right my husband started taking them every weekend because you so know she what? could leave she could leave the house you could leave the house we had a portable okay. ventilator she was okay. in a wheelchair and there are certain things that are really accessible so, you know, those were the things we did and we did it all the time. We okay. would go to the art museum, we'd go to the, the, you know, when you're at the aquarium, you don't think about this, but the um, the fish tanks are at a seated eye level at the aquarium in Boston. And mm -hmm. you get free admission if you're in a wheelchair. We were at that hey. aquarium every week. We were at the, you know, we did the things and she went to school, she went with a nurse. Okay. Uh, that was another big one for us because we wanted to keep her in the public school. Mm -hmm. And the school came to us and they said, we want you, we want to send her out of district and we don't think we can keep her safe in the public school. And mm -hmm. we said, well, you don't have to keep her safe. The nurse will keep her safe. That's the nurse's job. And they said, sorry, we can't have, she is the most medically complex person in the city where we live, which is a big city. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and first of all, that was something to learn that your kid is the most medically complex. Right. But we went to mediation. I mean, I was really fighting for this because we wanted to keep her with the people she knew. Yeah. And we had, you know, we had a mediator say to us, well, you can go to trial, but you will lose because there's no judge who is going to say the school doesn't think they can keep her safe they're willing to pay $70,000 a year to send her to this place that can keep her safe. And, and there, there's no judge who will rule against that. So we had to make a decision and send her to a school that was really scary to us because the school's in, in a, on the side of a hospital and the kids there were in wheelchairs and had trachs and all the things that we were just getting used to. And of course, I'm sure other parents saw our kid and had the same feeling I had when I saw theirs, which was, wow, this, this it was heartbreaking for me. It was heartbreaking to see these kids, you know? And, and, and the first day there that we got the schedule and they were going to have cooking class. And I called my best friend. I said, I can't, they're not gonna make her go to cooking class. She can't eat. That's cruel to have her go to cooking class. And my friend said, okay, calm down. Let's, before you pull her from cooking class, let's let her try it once. And so she goes off to school and that day the teacher calls me to tell me, I said, well, how was it? And she said, well, her favorite thing by far was the cooking class. She loved putting her hands in the dough and getting them gooey. And, and she came home and she had wrapped carefully a chocolate chip cookie for each of us. And she handed us the chocolate chip cookie. And she was so excited that we loved the chocolate chip cookie. And I thought, Jesus, if she can be excited and happy about making cookies that she can't eat, then I better get it together and start figuring out how to get find joy in the everyday and in the things that she can do. And let's stop focusing about what she can't do and let's figure out what she can do. And those are the things we're gonna celebrate. And that was a really big learning for me. 
Yeah. Well, good for you for seeing that so quickly in that moment. And well, you know, in sure. retrospect, it happened in a moment, but I'm sure it happened over a long period of time. It's a little time, I know. Uh, you know, the, our kids just—they're here to teach us so many lessons. I thoroughly believe so. Oh goodness. Okay. Um, so, how old was she then when she went to this special school? Uh, I think that she was probably 10 then. Okay. So it was shortly after she had gotten out yeah, of the hospital. Yeah, I think we did a year after we got out of the hospital in, in uh, mainstream okay. school, and then it was clear that wasn't going to work. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So she's about 10, and you've got one child a little older, one child a little younger. Okay. And so she can get out of the house, and you've, you've, you've kind of created a normal where you can go out and do things as a family, which is huge, because that is such a big, big barrier for so many of us who have yeah. children with special needs, because it's really hard to find things that they can do and that your whole family will enjoy. So, so you've, you've got this now. We've I mean, this. I mean, she's on a ventilator and has a Drake and is tube fed and all these, things, but, but you've got this, you've created and you have accepted, I have to find joy and peace with this. Mm-hmm. So then what's next? You know, the losses were very, very slow. So we didn't really fully see them as they were coming. And again, it's a degenerative disease. So at some point I realized things are gonna get a lot worse before they get worse. And, Mm. you know, and that's what happened. So she could mouth words for a long time, she could interact very much through mouthing, we understood her. And then she would communicate by pointing and then she could nod her head and shake her head. But over time, what has happened really in the last two years is she's lost all ability to move. And that means she can't blink her eyes. She can't nod her head and mostly she can't smile, you know, I mean, she cannot move and you never know. I mean, it's not like I ever. Just let that, we gotta let that sink in um, for a minute, you know, to everyone who's listening, I think. In the last two years, she's lost all ability to move. Absolutely every single part of her body, even blinking. Even playing, which is which isn't something we concentrate on doing. That's just there's that's so much we don't concentrate on doing. Natural. We don't concentrate on swallowing. So when she lost her ability to swallow, and that means, by the way, not only can she not eat, but she can't swallow her saliva. Her spit, yeah, right. And that was huge. I remember a doctor telling me back when we were in the hospital when she was nine years old about this thing that there are kids, there are people who lose their ability to swallow. And the average person produces one to two quarts of saliva a day. And you need to suction the saliva, right? I remember at the time thinking, why is she telling me this? That's a, can you believe? I called my father, right? He's a recurring theme here is me turning to my father, right? And I called my father, I said, there are people who can't swallow. We couldn't believe it. It was like, it was like so foreign to us. And clearly this doctor saw the trajectory we were heading on, headed on, right? But so, so things that you don't think about doing, swallowing, blinking. Well, if you can't blink, your yeah. eyes will be out. 
Right. Yeah. How, 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 how does one not be able to blink? Like still I what mean, that means. I just think like I have to do eye drops every single morning in yeah. my eyes because I had LASIK surgery several years ago. And ever since then, my eyes are really dry, but I just have to put little drops in. But all through the day when I'm awake and I'm blinking, my eyes put the eye drops in all through the day. And then when she's sleeping, which she now does not only sleeping at night, but sleeping for many hours during the day, we have to tape her eyes closed. Oh, wow. And we had to do a, a, a procedure for a bit of time when her cornea became so dried out where we actually had to sew her eyes shut. That was the big one for me. That felt like a horror movie, you know, like how can we sew her eye shut? It worked though. We kept it sh sewn shut for a few weeks and it, and it really did help heal the cornea, but that was horrible. Mm, I can't even imagine that for your kiddo. Yeah. So how do you process this grief now? This is, this is sig so significant. This is so overwhelming. Yeah. In the last two years, this kind of degeneration. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? How do you process that? You know, there's still a big piece of me that feels like she's still here. Well, sure. And uh, she's, yeah, she's still here, right? There's not just a piece of me that feels that she's still here. She is still here, right? So you don't want, you know, it's still like, how can I grieve this person who's right in front of me? So, I, so you know, you grieve the losses, but, but you know, she, she's still here. She's still with us. We, we talk to her. She can't, she can't let us know that she's understanding us, that she's hearing us. We don't know what, how much she can hear, how much she can see. We just have to assume that she's there and she, and she hears us and, and most important, she feels us, right? I mean, I believe that really, really deeply that she feels that she's surrounded by so much love, but, but sure, there's a lot, of, a lot of grief, but we, and we know that a lot of grief is coming. Yeah. What, um what, how, when, like, do you prepare and plan for that? You know, we, we know what's, you know, what this trajectory, we, we, we know, <laughs> we know how this story, we know that this story will end at some point. We don't know exactly how, we don't know when, and we don't focus on that. We focus really very much on, you know, what's in front of us today. Yeah. And how are your other kids now? I mean, they're teenagers. They're, they're teenagers. Yeah. At least one of them is in high school, right? Are they both I've kids? got three teenagers. Yeah. You know, I mean, my little guy's been, he's two years younger than she is and they're so tight and it's, you know, heartbreaking for all of us, but um, that my, my older one has learned a lot of medical stuff, definitely like knows more than a lot of nurses do mm -hmm. um, and can help with some of the hands-on. Uh, my little guy is the best hugger that there is in the world. I've always said he's the best medicine <laughs> that mm -hmm. she's ever had. Um, and, uh, you know, we just, we carry on. That siblings are the best therapists. And so, I mean, I feel that with your son, you know, you're, yeah, guy. well, the other thing is, I mean, these kids are so spectacular because what they have seen, what they have lived through, the empathy they have, I mean, these are, they're, they're heroic, you know, and they're going to 
becomes, I mean, they are as, as just the human beings they are now, but when I think about the adults that they're going to become and um, they're tremendous, tremendous people. And, you know, maybe they would have, have turned out to be this empathic and this spectacular anyway, but I, I do know that they, what they have seen and what they have um, experienced has taught them so much. And I even had, you know, the head of pediatric neurology was at our house a couple of days ago um, for one of the biggest hospitals in Boston, which by the way, when the head of pediatric neurology comes to your house, you yeah, know, yeah. your kiddo is one of a kind, right? But she said to me that one of the reasons she got into this field of um, these rare illnesses, she said, you know, the siblings, uh, seeing how heroic siblings are really moved her and working with the families. Um, and, and I do think, you know, they, we, we, we see it every day with them. They're, they're pretty amazing. I, I concur wholeheartedly. And, and um, right after your interview airs, the next episodes will start my sibling series that ah. I'm going to be doing. And so I've just, I've been doing some of those interviews already. And I'm, I'm just really in that mindset of, of, you know, my siblings and their story. Do you have, you know, what kind of support do they have? Are they in therapy? Do they have any sort of Sib shops where you live. My my daughters are able to go to Sib Shop, um, which is an amazing group. Uh, one of them is in the older one has has been in therapy for a long time. The younger one isn't interested in it yet, but I think uh, you know, hopefully, <laughs> he's had to deal with with so much. Um, mm -hmm. I think that that will that will come. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but but they have definitely been shaped, obviously. I mean, look, we're all shaped by our homes. We're all shaped by our family. We're all shaped by our siblings, our parents, et cetera. Theirs is just so unusual that the shapes, <laughs> they've been shaped in very, uh, very particular ways and in very unusual ways. Yeah. And so how have you taken care of your mental health? What do you do for self-care through all of this? <laughs> um, what do I do? Well, I will tell you, uh, uh, one of the things that my husband and I instituted, this is just really practical and it made a world of difference again, pre-COVID is we gave each other a night off during the week. And it was funny, you know, we, we got this idea from a couple we knew who had one kid who was a healthy kid, but they, but they had started doing this and we said, we should do this. So <laughs> I knew like one healthy kid. What yeah, really? Why do you need a night off? From? Night off too. <laughs> But so Thursday nights became my night and Tuesday nights became my husband's and beautiful. it made such a difference in the week to know on Thursday after, after work, I could do whatever, you know, get together with a friend. I start doing Pilates. Um, I write a lot. So for me, having that Thursday night was a huge thing. And then he got Tuesday nights. Now we haven't done that in a year because of COVID, but that made a big difference. And then we also had Saturday night date night. Now, in order for us to go out, we needed two people to come to the house. We needed a nurse and a babysitter. It was right. hard to arrange, but it was worth it, you know, because we never had time together. So we had our Saturday night date night, and that was a big thing for self-care and a big thing for our, our you know, relationship health. Um, and then I have a, a great community of girlfriends. I also, um, I read and I, I've been writing a ton. So I have... Um, I have written a book about this mm -hmm. um, and the writing for me was, um, was a great outlet. 
uh, I had certain hours every evening when the after when the day nurse left before the night nurse came. There was like the window when I my daughter would be asleep and I'd be sitting in her room, uh, and I wrote, mm-hmm. and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote, and then I had written a book. That's amazing. And so, has it been published? We are shopping it right now. So stay tuned on that one. Absolutely. Please tell me as soon as anything happens with that. Um, Writing is so cathartic. And I love that you found that time to be the useful, valuable self-care time, Mm -hmm. you know, that, and you were spending it with her and she was sleeping and you had to be there and, and, um, you know, that's so great. And, and again, such a good lesson to share. And so I'm, I'm putting a pin in that for us, for people, because writing, I think, can be hard to get used to if you're not just a natural writer, um, someone who has always just journaled or written or anything like that. Um, but I encourage people to do that. And like, definitely don't feel any pressure. Like Jessica, you know, has written a book. Don't, you know, not everybody's going to write a book. (laughs) Um, But man, just journaling before bed. I love to just take my journal into bed when I'm just settled in and snuggled and I got my dog next to me and I'm getting cozy and I just kind of pour out whatever, whatever. It's a great outlet. The other thing I would say, Um, in terms of self-care is when you have a rare, a kid with a rare disease, it is unlikely, at least in our case, it was highly unlikely that we'd meet other parents whose kid had the same disease. But what I will say is meeting other parents of rare kids was hugely, hugely valuable. It doesn't matter what the disease is, but as a parent of rare or as a parent of extreme special needs or as a parent of medically complex, whatever your situation is, those are the people who are gonna get it. And it doesn't matter that, you know, this one has mitochondrial disease and this one has X disease, whatever. Mm-hmm. They understand. And and so being able to connect, you know, look, when you and I spoke for the first time, it was like, ah, we, we get each other, right? And that I think is a really um, valuable thing that I wish I had kind of known more about earlier on, because I thought, you know, it's isolating. Nobody's, uh, nobody knows what mitochondrial disease is, or nobody knows what Merck syndrome is. It doesn't matter if you can. And these days, obviously, it's so easy to connect with people virtually um, and, and finding people who really get it, because no matter how amazing your friends and family are, and my friends are really, truly spectacular, there's no way for them to understand. No yeah. way. Beautiful. And I agree wholeheartedly. I, I've always said there's, there in the early years, for sure, there were only two places where I felt like I was a normal human being, where I didn't always feel different and, and out of place and like a, you know, I don't know what an alien or something. Um, and one of those very impactful places was when, uh, again, my daughter was really young when she was in early on, uh, the birth to three program. And part of that was getting to go into the school once a week. Um, and for half of the hour, you did, you know, stuff with the therapists and whatnot with your kids as a group. Um, so they got to be with other kids and you got to see other kids, which was really great. But then the second half of the hour, the staff would watch all the babies and, and the moms would get the moms and dads. There were dads in there too, would get to go over, um, into their little corner of the room and meet with the social worker and just, you know, go through 
social worker stuff, but that half hour was literally the highlight of my week. Being able to be in a group of, I don't know, there were maybe eight of us or something, other parents who I just felt like I could breathe around. Like I totally, like I didn't have to always explain every single thing about my kid and how, what, you know, Mm -hmm. and I never minded answering people's questions. I'm all about education. I mean, obviously I'm here to share messages right now, but, um, but having that place where you just felt like you were normal, um, it's huge to have other parents who get it. So definitely another amazing message for our listeners too. So what, just to kind of wrap up our, our talk here, what would you, um, what advice would you give to any other parents who maybe have a super complex kiddo like you do, but who are at the very beginning of their journey? What would you say to them? Um, I would say, cliche as it may sound, this is a marathon. This is not a sprint. You are not going to solve this tomorrow. You are not going to Google your way to an explanation or a cure tomorrow. It's okay to, you know, take it slow. It's okay to be in the moment. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be honest. Um, And it's okay to be happy. Yes. That's a really good point. All the feelings. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of this journey. And um, I'm just sending you so much love and light to you and all of your family. And, um, you know, thank you so much for your- Thank you. Thank you for for having me and for all you're doing and for sharing these stories and, for shedding, shedding light on, for many people, what is just not something they're aware of. And I think so much of it is about awareness and, and acceptance of all these kiddos who are, who are so full of love and life, but so, so, so different. Thank you for being here. If you want to learn more about how to take care of yourself along your parenting journey, or how you can better support those special needs parents in your life, you can follow me on social media, Lara Kitts on Facebook and at Lara.Kitts on Instagram. And that is spelled L-A-R-A-K-I-T-T-S. I also have a blog on my website that's worth subscribing to. Check it out at LaraKitts.com. Until next time, take care of yourself.